1: Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Thursday. This is Seattle Now. We hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. Today, we'll hear about the life of Tokate, the last Southern resident orca in captivity. She died in August. Back then, we talked to Lummi Nation member Jay Julius and Seattle Times reporter Linda Mapes about her life and the story of endangered orca. But before we revisit Tokate's story, a reminder, every Seattle Now episode this year was made possible by you. Your support is the reason we can bring trusted news, storytelling, and conversations to everyone in our community. And that's a gift that keeps on giving. As we look forward to 2024, consider joining the dozens of Seattle Now listeners who make our work possible. There's a link in the show notes to donate. And thanks.
0: She symbolizes so much. She was resilient. She was strong, optimistic. She was hopeful.
1: That was Lummi Nation member Jay Julius, president of SACILA, an indigenous-led nonprofit organization. He's talking about the beloved orca Tokate, who passed away Friday at the Miami Seaquarium. She was thought to be 57 years old and was the last living Southern resident orca in captivity. Plans had been underway to return the whale to home waters here in Washington. Now, the Lummi tribe, marine life advocates, scientists, researchers, and the public are mourning her loss.
0: How do we get her home? How do we make sure she doesn't continue to be showcased and uh, used for public display as she's been since she was a child?
1: We're talking with Jay Julius and Seattle Times reporter Linda Mapes about Tokate's life. Thanks, Linda and Jay. Really appreciate you taking the time. Sure, Patricia. Happy to. Thank you. All right. So there was a major effort to get Tokate back home to the Salish Sea. And in fact, preparations were being made for that to happen. She was known as Lolita at the Miami Seaquarium, where she was in a pool for 53 years. Let's talk about what we know about her health recently.
2: Right. So this is one of the things that made her death so shocking. I mean, in some ways, no surprise, here she is in the smallest tank in the industry for 53 years. It's it's incredible she lived this long, and she was alone, uh, no other orca whale with her, which is a completely unnatural state for these animals, which are highly social. You know, they had been uh, working hard in the last six months or so to improve her situation, bringing More activity into the picture for her, improving her diet, uh, trying to treat her gastrointestinal disorders. Uh, All of this was being done with hope of bringing her home. And in fact, there was quite a turnaround in her health, I'm told by people who were with her up until the moments of her death. She was more lively, she was um, more engaged, she was more active. They had been practicing with a sling to pick her up and move her and hopefully put her on a plane and bring her home. And then all of a sudden, she had a A massive um, renal failure is what's believed. We don't know that for sure yet, but you know the people closest to her were shocked by this and really thought that they were witnessing a turnaround that was going to lead to her her return home. So, you know, both surprising and not surprising. You can't treat an animal like that for that long and and expect it to live at all, let alone be in good health. And it's. surprising she lived that long. It's not surprising she died, other
1: than how quickly that happened after she seemed to be doing better. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Jay, let's talk about the Lummi Nation's relationship to Tokate and Orca. What can you tell us about the family connection between you?
0: As far as relationship goes with the Southern residents or the Kothalmishan, I think Teachings from them have taught us how to be community, taught us how to be family, how to grieve, how to love, how to take care of one another. And, you know, they represent so much and they're the guardians of the Salish Sea. They're, they fished side by side with us for thousands of years. And so that, that relationship and that connection to them and the teachings from them is deep and, and goes uh, way back.
1: Yeah, thank you for that, Jay. Linda, back at the time of her capture, how was whale catching perceived by the public? Because it's really hard to believe. Even now, it's hard to believe that it was acceptable back then.
2: Yeah, well, let's talk about that. We're talking about the capture era. And during that time, um, Ted Griffin, who caught her, up in, uh, caught the very first captive killer whale displayed was Namu. And he was caught in a fisherman's net. And Ted had a, an aquarium down on the waterfront and he really wanted a killer whale. And so when he heard that there was a killer whale to be had, he went up there with cash in his pocket that he collected from waterfront businesses, some of which still exist, um, and bought the killer whale and, and brought Namu home. And when he arrived on the Seattle waterfront with Namu in a in a homemade cage towed behind a tugboat. It was with a flotilla of of people who joined out of sheer excitement. When he uh, cruised beneath the the bridge at Deception Pass, there were thousands of people lined up to watch. When he arrived at the downtown waterfront, he was given a key to the city and a hero's welcome. So I cannot stress enough how different uh, the times were in terms of their attitude. I mean, Ted Griffin, was cheered for by the Seattle Times when he would go out and, and chase orca whales with everything from speedboats to helicopters, uh, using seal bombs to corral them. You know, we I've looked at the old clips in our paper from that time, and uh, the Seattle Times rooted for him, Ted Griffin, off whale hunting again, you know. And it, it was regarded at the time that these were vicious uh, killer whales. That's what they were called. And, and they were reviled. They were shot at by fishermen. And the great paradox of this story is that by bringing this killer whale, Namu, to uh, Elliott Bay in the waterfront and people seeing these animals up up close for the first time, people began to understand these were uh, intelligent animals. These were, of course, beautiful, athletic, um, and gentle. And so this changed people's understanding. But the thing that really changed people's understanding was, in fact, this particular capture of, of Tokate in. Pen Cove in 1970. This is in the summertime. People are out and about. This happens right up close to people, and they are horrified to see what happens, which is the screaming of the parents as the young whales are taken. The parents that will not leave, even when uh, the net is lifted for these excess animals they didn't need uh, to go, they wouldn't leave. They stayed with the young ones. You know, it it was clear to anyone watching that this was a violent, uh, despicable practice. And Change, change began to come, and by 1976, whaling in Washington waters uh, was outlawed. And so you have to understand that by the time that happened, Puget Sound had become the primary and and very popular source of supply for people all over the world who wanted a, an orca to put on display for money. And we lost a third of the pods
1: at that time, and the whales have never recovered from that loss. Yeah, you know, Jay, there were efforts underway to bring Tokate home to the Salish Sea, and she died before the move could happen. Can you tell us about those plans?
0: Our leadership made a decision in 2000, end of 2017, early 2018, and gave direction and, and were directed and led and guided by uh, Chief Salik from Lummi and, and elders to bring her home. Uh, That's when the Tokatai totem pole was carved by the House of Tears carvers and the the totem pole journey began. And we did the press conference in Miami and really telling her story, which, of course, told the story of the captures. And for for me, that's when it really began uh, under the nation and with the nation.
1: Okay. yeah. Can you tell us more about the totem that was carved for her?
0: So, yeah that pole came to be and came to life in the spirit of Tokatai and the spirit of the water. And then the journey began. And I believe Linda was on that journey. It led to uh, myself as chairman going to uh, Miami in the Seaquarium and getting with leaders and electeds in Miami and uh, beginning to develop a, a relationship and try to help them understand that This story needs to be told. She needs to go home, and this is who we are, and this is our culture, and she's getting old, and and it would be nice to die amongst family.
1: Yeah, she lived a long life away from family. Linda, let's talk about how things have changed in terms of protections for whales. You know, the law is on the side of the orca today, but where do things stand now?
2: Well, for the orcas, uh, they don't stand in a good place. Seventy-three is a tiny number. It's the smallest it was at the end of the capture era, and why they did, while they did rebuild their numbers uh, now and then, since that time, they've, they've never gotten to a healthy place of robust populations and, you know, they're facing these three major threats. Inadequate food. Uh, If you don't eat every day, Patricia, you don't feel real well. And these animals are the same as us. They're not fasting adapted. They need to eat every day to be in top condition and certainly in reproductive condition. And, you know, many of, of the pregnancies that these whales achieve wind up being lost because the mothers are food stressed. So, number one, not enough to eat. Uh, Number two, they put up with too much noise, too much racket, too much disruption by boats, ships, ferries, um, everybody out there on the water buzzing around in the place they need to be with this racket overlaying the exact sweet spot that they need to hear the tiny little sound of their echolocation click coming back from a salmon they're trying to eat. They have to chase them down one at a time. You know, that might not matter so much if there's plenty of salmon around, but when, when fish are scarce... You've really got to catch every one. And this is also why we don't see them so often anymore, because um, they're they're chasing salmon. They're just trying to find food wherever they can get it. So lack of food, noise that makes it harder to hunt. And then these fish are not pure. These fish have pollutants in them from from us. And these pollutants can have a a variety of very deleterious effects from uh, suppressing their immune system to um, actually, even poisoning the mother's milk, the babies get the heaviest hit when they first begin to suckle their mother. So, you know, they're they're up against us. The, the, the southern residents remember their range is from the middle of Vancouver Island all the way down to the Golden Gate. Uh, this is the most densely populated part of the coast. It's the fewest fish and the most pollution. So, they've got the hardest the hardest situation.
1: Yeah, there are huge hurdles for the surviving southern residents. Jay, efforts are being made to bring Tokate home to Washington. Let's talk about the plans to honor her.
0: As far as honoring and her coming home, I, I do believe that this is true. She will come home, not in a fashion and she won't be buried the way they've been uh, uh, grieved and, and the ceremonies that they hold for one another when one passes, unfortunately, won't take place as it has for thousands of years. But What remains are left, I believe, will come home, will be home. And coincidentally, we donated that pole to San Juan Island. The Port of Friday Harbor accepted it several months ago, and we just finished the foundation, and the port picked it up on August 7th and actually installed it on the foundation at Jackson's Beach on San Juan Island on August 10th. And with the port and Cecilia and House of Tears Carvers. We're planning an installation ceremony for her permanent home on the beach at Jackson Beach, and that has now turned into a celebration of life.
1: Jay, before I let you go, do you have anything else you want to share about the whale?
0: My daughter and my son and I spend the summer on San Juan Island working, and the night before she passed, or the day before she passed, her entire family came through. All the pods came through. They were there. I got to spend time with her family on the water alone uh, the following day, and it's just for me, it's amazing to to be in a to step out of the world we live in and step into a uh, back into an old world and to see them coming together and see them preparing for that journey. And uh, so that's what we will be doing, uh, is celebrating her life on August 27th out at Jackson's Beach.
1: Thank you, Jay and Linda, for taking the time. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. You guys uh, appreciate you sharing her story.
1: Oh, of course. Thank you. That was Lummi Nation member and Cecila President Jay Julius and Seattle Times reporter Linda Mapes a shout out to all of our dedicated listeners thank you so much we make this show with incredible support from our community that's you we're headed into a new year and can't wait to bring you more stories that keep you informed and engaged with all things seattle consider a year-end gift for our show there's a link in the show notes to donate and thanks Appreciate you listening to Seattle Now this year. If you want to make sure we're around for years to come, you can support us at the link in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Our production team also includes Caroline Chamberlain-Gomez, Claire McGrain, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you tomorrow. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.